Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Dr. Joao Chavez and Dr. Tito Madrazo about Hispanic preaching and immigrant identity. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza, everyone. My name is João Chavez. I am the Assistant Director for Programming at the Hispanic Theological Initiative. And I have the distinct pleasure of having here my good friend, Tito Madrazo, who is Program Director in the Religion Division of the Lilly Endowment, to uh, talk about his brand new book, just came out in March. The book is Predicadores, Hispanic Preaching and Immigrant Identity with Baylor University Press. Thank you, Tito, for joining us, brother. No, it is a gift to be here with you today. Um, you know, it has always been a gift to be part of the larger HTI family. That's where you and I were able to meet uh, as HTI scholars and then dissertation fellows. And um, it feels in many ways like coming back home to be participating here in a conversation on the open plaza. Awesome. Um, I'm always happy to talk to you, of course. And can we start off by just talking about a little bit about your, your own trajectory, Tito? Academic, professional, and personal trajectory. How do they intersect with this project specifically? That's a great question. Um, you know, in order to do that, I'm actually going to have to, to do what so many of the collaborators in this book also did. Uh, you know, whenever I asked uh, the preachers involved in this study to tell me about their vocational journeys, uh, they couldn't help but also tell me about their migration journeys, uh, because the two things were so closely intertwined for them. And the same thing is true for me when I think about uh, my relationship with this work. So my family immigrated to the United States from Venezuela when I was a year old. Uh, I became a naturalized citizen when I was five years old. And so that, that informed in many ways, these trajectories that we're discussing. Uh, one of the unique things for me was that even though we grew up in this bilingual, bicultural reality, we spoke both Spanish and English at home. Uh, most of our church experiences took place in English language congregations. Uh, and then later on, when I discerned my own call into ministry, I was serving predominantly Anglo churches uh, in North Carolina at that time. And what happened for me as I was serving in Western North Carolina um, is that I was one of the only bilingual pastors in the whole area. And so I quickly began serving as a liaison between Spanish speaking congregations and English speaking congregations and, and being part of the conversation when it came to the ordination of pastors and the calling of new ministers and leading sometimes in bilingual worship. And so it was really out of these experiences that I discerned my own call to go uh, to Duke Divinity School and begin my doctoral work because I wanted to continue to be of service to these congregations, these immigrant congregations that I had um, 
I had been drawn toward in my work, and I also wanted to reflect more deeply on the practices of faith and preaching that were going on in these communities of faith. And so, you know, I quickly settled on wanting to do this ethnographic project during my doctoral studies. Uh, but I was also pastoring a congregation at the same time. And then uh, during my doctoral work, I began teaching uh, both in uh, Latin America. I taught students through a program in uh, Aguachapan, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, in Peru several times. And then we began uh, a training program. It started as a peer group preaching initiative and then grew into a full certificate program. Uh, for aspiring and uh, current uh, Hispanic Latinx ministers in North Carolina. Uh, so in, in many ways, all of my journeys really intersect in this, uh, in this particular book. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. It's fascinating. I mean, it, it's it, it, how this vocational um, trajectory is uh, very much inseparable from our life stories, right? I feel I've gone through a, a similar journey in that sense. But it's interesting that you call uh, the, the people whose story you narrate in the book collaborators, right? You, you're very um, explicit about the methodology you use. That's a big part of, uh, of, uh, of this book. It's, it's almost as if uh, in, in sections of the book, it, your conclusions and your and your um, argument is inseparable from the from the methodology used itself. We call it collaborative ethnography. Right. So before we go into like the themes of the book more specifically, can you tell us what that is and and what are the major advantages for the study the study of ethnic and religious communities? Absolutely. Uh, as I was thinking about this project, as it was beginning to take shape, it was Kate Bowler that recommended that I pick up a copy of Luke Eric Lassiter's work on collaborative ethnography. Um, it's the Chicago Guide, and it has four major commitments collaborative ethnography does that really guided my work. Uh, the first one is an ethical and moral responsibility to the consultants or the collaborators involved in the study. Uh, and that shows up in my work really in the way that I try to protect the identities of many of these collaborators. Uh, many of them share with me uh, details of their own experience as undocumented immigrants. Uh, and I was conducting many of these interviews in 2017, in the first year of the Trump presidency. And so uh, anxiety was high among these communities and remained high. Uh, for a number of years. Um, and so I made a deliberate determination really to, to protect them as much as possible. So their, uh, their identities are masked behind pseudonyms. Uh, the churches that they serve also are only um, called by pseudonyms and you know I don't really locate them specifically just in a very general sense uh, in and around the greater Raleigh-Durham area um, just to really to protect vulnerable people as much as possible. The second commitment 
of collaborative ethnography is to be absolutely honest um, with collaborators. And, and that involves just uh, really being clear about your motives from the beginning and obtaining um, permission, uh, informed consent from all the collaborators. Um, the third commitment is to produce clear and accessible writing as much as possible. And I, I hope that that shows up in the book. One of the things that I really wanted to make sure was that I wrote a book that was accessible to faith communities um, and not just to uh, academic circles. One of the ways that I tried to make it accessible uh, for the collaborators specifically is I preserve their original Spanish from all of their sermons and interviews and then produce my English translation next to it. Um, and that also holds me accountable for the degree of interpretation that's always present in translation. And, and that really feeds into the fourth commitment, which is the one that really shapes the work, is that collaborative ethnography requires collaborative reading and writing and co-interpretation alongside consultants. It really privileges the agency and the self-understanding of the people involved in the study. Uh, and this was really important for me. I wanted to make sure that these people were not just subjects, you know, that their voices, that their concerns were really privileged and foregrounded in this work. And some of it shows up in the language. You know, the, the subtitle of this work here is Hispanic Preaching and Immigrant Identity. Uh, and there are, there are problems with the term Hispanic. But as I really got to know my collaborators here, many of the other terms that that you and I have used in academic writing and conversation, whether it's Latino A or Latina O or Latinx, uh, really didn't resonate with these communities. And so because they saw themselves as Hispanic pastors engaged in Hispanic ministry, I wanted to honor their use of that term. And so that's what I used throughout the book. In the same way, in honoring their self-understanding, I wanted to come back as I was beginning to write portions or beginning to draw some connections from interviews and sermon observation to really come back and to see what they thought, whether I was on the right track. And sometimes the answer was no. And I had to go back to the, the drawing board and really rethink things. This happened for me specifically in my interviews. Some of my early questions uh, coming out of some of the classes that I'd done in sociology of religion, you know, I was asking questions, trying to determine whether these uh, communities of faith were really functioning as sites of cultural assimilation or ethnic identity maintenance. And that's a, a really salient question in sociological circles. But again, it really didn't land for my collaborators. That wasn't what they really thought of themselves as doing in either case. You know, they thought more in terms of, of faith formation and uh, and a culture as believers and and so I had to go back to the drawing board there again with some of my questions and, um, and really make sure that I was writing about what resonated for them and for their communities of faith. I think that's wonderful. It really shows, I mean, having read the, 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 the book twice, uh, I mean, all these commitments are there. And I, I, I wonder how much longer it takes, especially for somebody, somebody who is trying to finish their dissertation, you know, uh, being open and vulnerable to changing uh, the trajectory of the work, 
based on the feedback you get from collaborators. I, th I thought that that was a, it was it was beautifully done, and and, and it's just such a uh, a courageous endeavor in terms of the methodology alone. Wow, I appreciate your saying that. The good news when you're doing four to five years of participant observation is you have some time, you know, to fix things when you've been heading off in the wrong direction. Hmm. Did you, Tito, did you already, I mean, how early in your training did you decide to do collaborative ethnography? And then how did that shape, uh, you know, an idea that you might have had before uh, or, or, or did you have a different idea and this kind of shifted your whole kind of research trajectory or not? You know, I knew I wanted to do ethnography and I began, I had some uh, wonderfully gracious professors who allowed me to, even within the, um, the coursework that I was taking, to begin to practice some participant observation at that point. Um, and what appealed to me about collaborative ethnography is it, it decenters the researcher to an even greater extent than ethnography already naturally does. And that was important. Uh, you know, I identify as a Hispanic Latinx immigrant. I'm a Protestant pastor. Uh, and yet, you know, my journey is not identical to these Hispanic Latinx ministers and Protestant pastors with whom I was working. And the decentering aspect of collaborative ethnography helped for me to make sure again that I was hearing, relaying their self-understanding as accurately as possible. Um, and, you know, it's a joy, on the other hand, when you write something down and you bring it back to someone and they finally say, yes, that's what I meant. Wonderful, brother. So the way you organized the book was particularly helpful to me. Um, and I think it'll be helpful for, for readers in general. Again, the language, like, like you said, one of the commitments, the language, it will be accessible. So this is much, I mean, it is a rigorous academic book that a lot of people can read. And those things only rarely come together, which is one of the, the, the many great contributions of your work. But after you lay out your methodological choices, you then divide chapters thematically and proceed from what I understood as more general elements of immigrant religious identities as they relate to your collaborators, to the particularities of how they're preaching dialogues with the individual and, and communal selves. You begin by talking about how the wounds of migration and the discernment for ministerial vocation overlapped in the lives of your collaborators. You, you talked a little bit about that uh, when you're talking about the methodology. But can you talk a little more about this dynamic and how uh, this overlapping um, journeys of migration and vocational discernment informed the ministerial roles of the Hispanic pastors that are your collaborators? Sure. So uh, it's Timothy Smith who uh, writes about migration often being a theologizing experience. And there's a lot of literature about this. Uh, what I found was that migration also provided the context for many of my collaborators for their vocational discernment. 
And again, this came up when I would ask them questions about their calling to ministry. They would begin by telling their story in their country of origin. And then tell me sometimes these harrowing stories of migration and settling in the United States. Um, and because migration played such a key factor in, for many of them, their conversion experience um, and then their vocational discernment, it has a profound impact on the shape of their ministry. Each of my collaborators experienced uh, the wounds of migration in different ways. For some of them, these were actual physical wounds, including one pastor who was paralyzed at a young age. Others experienced the wounds that come from a loss of identity uh, or a loss of community. And these were dramatic stories for them of, of loss and hardship. But what was even more remarkable in their telling of the stories is that for each of my collaborators, ultimately what they focused on was the way that they had experienced God in the crucible of migration. Whatever their wound had been, God had provided for them some degree of healing. And so when it came to the shape of their ministries, they really focused their ministry on helping others to experience this same healing from God for their own wounds of migration. And this was reflected uh, in their preaching specifically as well. I think the easiest way to say it perhaps is that they proclaimed God as they had come to know God through their migration experiences. Mm. Thank you. That's, that's just a beautiful insight. Um, were they, were, how many of these pastors, Tito, and the congregants um, experienced Protestant Christianity after they migrated? Do you, do you have a sense of that? Yes. So, um, and I, I guess I should have said this about the methodology. So this study is based on uh, about four years of participant observation in a single congregation, and then uh, based as well on the interviews and um, watching, participating in worship services, seeing sermons of 24 um, pastors in all. Uh, of those 24, 23 uh, were first generation immigrants. There was one second generation immigrant as well, um, pastoring a Gen 1.5 and Gen 2 church. For almost all of them, conversion happened uh, either in their country of origin, um, in the midst of the migration journey or the first few years of settling in the United States. Um, it happened for all of them in Spanish language uh, congregations. Um, so, and we'll come back to some of this a little bit later on, probably in this interview, um, but 
one thing that was stunning to me, and, and I don't talk about this as much in the book, was even for the pastors, so the pastors all came from Baptist, Methodist, and Pentecostal traditions. Hmm. Uh, even for the Baptists and Methodists, their conversion experience was more likely to have happened in a Hispanic-led Pentecostal congregation. Even if later on in their vocational journey, they became pastors or ministers in Baptist or Methodist congregations. Yeah, that's that that's fascinating. I will hopefully get to talk a little bit more about that in terms of denominational affiliation and denominational identity, which is something that I'm interested in for my own purposes, but uh, my own research that deals with some of that. But after you talk about this this overlapping journeys, we then talk about the multiple identities of Hispanic pastors and have a whole chapter on that pretty much. And and you not only describe the multiple facets of Hispanic Protestant ministry. We also begin noticing overlaps between Hispanic and African-American ministerial and homiletical tendencies, which you mentioned in more than one chapter. Do you seem to, know, to, to see the practice of anchoring ministerial imagination and preaching in the particularities and struggles of these uh, faith communities as informing these overlaps, right, as I read you, between overlaps between Hispanic and African-American preaching and, and, and ministry? Also, you showed how how inescapable it is for these preachers to, to live life just like their, their members do, you know, in, in bivocational, bicultural, bilingual um, kind of settings that they're rather common for Hispanic ministry. So readers will find out, find out a little clearly later in the book, in, the conclu in your conclusion, that uh, you will connect this reality, right, this uh, inescapability of living life together with the parishioners in a very kind of material way to the ways in which the church in the U.S. can improve ministerial formation, theological education, and even, in a way, preaching authority. You, you don't name that very uh, explicitly in terms of preaching authority, but there seems to be a sense there uh, that that is, is implicit, at least implicitly there. One of the ways you talk about this is by pointing out the value, uh, and, and this is a quote here, of the close connection between content and context in Hispanic preaching. I found that phrase fascinating. One of many fascinating phrases I, I underlined in the book. Uh, and you describe this so vividly here, right? How this, this close connection between content and context kind of develops in, in these in this faith communities. So how can we understand these potential overlaps between African-American and in uh, uh, the Hispanic church? And what particular lessons you think that all churches can take from uh, learning about the, the, the way in which ministry is done in Hispanic faith communities? You know, when, when he reflects on the power of black preachers, Henry Mitchell writes about the way in which they preach in the idiom of the people. We might say that there's often less distance rhetorically and experientially, um, even imaginatively, between the pulpit and the pew in black preaching than there is in, in other traditions. Cleo LaRue is going to do the same thing when he, um, when he writes about the heart of black preaching. He's going to talk about kind of this this shared imagination and purpose in preaching uh, that connects the preacher 
and, and the listener. And I found this to be the case as well uh, for this community. And, and some of it has to do, at least when we're talking about first-generation preachers and first-generation congregants, some of it has to do with the ongoing experience uh, of migration. You know, it's not just uh, a journey that has a finite end when one settles in another country. Uh, Gloria Ansaldúa writes about the border being an open wound, you know, that continues to reopen. And I think in many ways, the experience of migration for first-generation immigrants also has uh, that same aspect. They carry kind of this border with them, uh, psychologically, theologically, imaginatively. And it's an open wound that continues to reopen because of the nature of their lives. Um, because almost all of the preachers in this study, um, because they're serving congregations without many financial resources, they're, they're almost always bivocational. And so they're working in the same fields, um, largely as their immigrant congregation, and they're aware of the hardship. Uh, they're aware of the discrimination. Uh, they're bicultural. They're bilingual. And so there's this constant reminder of their identity as, as immigrants um, that always kind of brings them back to their context. Uh, it keeps them rooted in it. So their preaching naturally comes out of it. Um, but this also becomes a source of, of power, this close connection between ministers and the laity. Um, in Christian Lalive Depinay's groundbreaking study of, of Pentecostalism in Chile. He reflects on why some of the new Pentecostal preachers in his study were having greater success than the more highly trained priests of the Roman Catholic Church. And he says this, uh, this is from uh, Refugio de las Masas, Haven for the Masses. He says, on the other hand, it is no longer the priest, the professional of God's word, who addresses the people and serves as a vehicle for the message, but rather the shoemaker, the miner, the seller of empanadas, in a word, the characters of everyday life. The one who speaks could be one of those who passes by, and the one who passes by could very well be the preacher one day. And the stories and testimonies of my collaborators really reflected that uh, understanding. This was true for them. Uh, they, uh, they were lay people within their congregation who were sometimes from the moment of their conversion already being equipped with some degree of ministerial and pastoral skills. And then again, sometimes because of the way in which bivocational pastors had to move suddenly based on a change in their secular employment uh, because of this transience in the leadership of many of these congregations they were thrust into the line of service I called upon suddenly to be the preachers for these congregations in which many of them had had experienced conversion themselves uh, and so there's there's a really close connection again in imagination in experience between those who preach and those who hear. And that, that reflects what we hear out of um, 
the writings of African-American homileticians as well. And I think the lesson for the larger church here, and Henry Mitchell says this often in his writing, um, is to learn to preach in the idiom of the people, to learn to um, embrace the wisdom of the communities which we've been called to serve. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not also sometimes a place and a need for challenging entrenched wisdom in certain communities. There absolutely is. Um, but the, the more we can do to decrease the distance between pulpit and pew, I think contributes to uh, the power and effectiveness of proclamation. I think that's very interesting, uh, Tito, especially because when you look at, uh, at the way in which world Christianity grows, Pentecostalism um, and, uh, um, and forms of less formal Christianities um, are kind of responsible for the major part of the, of the growth. And people have asked, well, or have said that liberation theology uh, in the in Latin America, has uh, you know, lost some of its, uh, of its uh, potential because of the kind of growth that, uh, that Pentecostal Christianity and other forms of Christianity, non-traditional Christianity, have, have kind of developed. And I think that connects to something that you say in the, in the next chapter, that, that you, you, you then move on to, to talk about what you call the preaching itself, and then you return to something you mentioned earlier in the manuscript that you bring up again later in the conclusion. So it seems like to be a, um, a central focus of part of, of, of what you're trying to do here in the book, which is the, the issue of authenticity or authentic preaching. And in terms of Hispanics, that connects to certain expectations regarding uh, Latin American liberation theology. You seem to provide an intervention kind of in two different kind of moves. You don't separate them explicitly in the book, but that's how I read it anyway. Um, and you, you question what you seem to consider sort of restrictive understanding of Hispanic religious identity that frames proper, proper preaching in terms of its ability to transmit forms of Latin American liberation theology. And here you point out that this disposition is too dependent on Anglo-centered education to be the sole measure of authenticity in Hispanic preaching. And then you present the contextual preaching of your collaborators, which you talk about a little bit already, that you argue addresses, or they address forms of liberation and marginalization in their own way, right? as having its own authenticity grounded in the experience of these immigrant preachers in their communities. So we have another powerful sentence that I think makes that very clear in one of, again, the many that I, that I underline. And you say that their current theology and preaching are truly theirs, shaped by their hardships of immigration as well as the practices of their local congregations. So it kind of summarizes a lot of, what, of the work you, you're doing here in this, in this book. But when one looks at the content of their theologies, which you also uh, show, in the guiding anxieties of their sermons, it seems that, at least for me, I could not help but notice the strong overlap with US evangelical theology, which is commonly understood as a rather 
white dominated this position. So for example, you point out that the central themes in the preaching of your collaborators are individual salvation, family values, holiness and doctrine. Uh, you, you mentioned um, in some of the, of the sermons that you transcribed, um, the, the tendencies regarding gender and sexuality issues. Uh, one of the, the sermons, it seems like uh, I could hear echoes of the war on Christmas theme that was so uh, prominent in, um, in conservative media in the US. So uh, I was thinking about those overlaps and I was wondering how should we understand these overlaps in connection to the claim that these theological anxiety are, anxieties are truly theirs, as you say? And, and I also wonder if these preachers are primarily shaping their theologies through their experiences or primarily interpreting and articulating their experiences in, in light of pre-existing theological frameworks. So if it, it's it probably a little bit of both, but I wonder what you have to say to that. So I, I guess that what, what I'm wondering if uh, is if you could talk a little bit more about the hopes and the limitation of what it seems to me competing narratives of authenticity as they relate to Hispanic religiosity and preaching. And this is where it gets complicated, right? Um, but that is, in my estimation, that is what faithful ethnography does. Ultimately, it complicates um, our pre-existing uh, categories as we get in and see what's actually happening on the ground. And it certainly did so for me. So, you know, before and in the early stages of my ethnographic work, I really wanted to understand what was being said about Hispanic Protestant preaching. And, and there's really not a whole lot out there. Um, what we have in most cases are preaching manuals that in a sense are describing what should be happening in uh, the Hispanic pulpit. And so in reading all of these, uh, one book that was particularly helpful as I was situating myself, um, and, it, and it's actually two books. So this is by Justo Gonzalez and Pablo Jimenez. Um, who've written a Spanish language version of this book called Manual de Homiletica Hispana and um, an English language version that has mostly the same content called Pulpito, um, Introduction to Hispanic Preaching. And in this book, they each in, in different chapters really talk about a, a more desirable kind of Hispanic preaching uh, that does foreground um, what we might consider uh, classical liberationist positions, prophetic witness, um, a move for social change, again, is the most desirable form, but then, but then also, and, and this word gets used at least once in the book, as perhaps what is most truly authentic. Um, and there's a consideration that many traditional forms of Hispanic preaching that might focus more heavily on private religiosity or individual morality are, are less authentic um, and are in fact the result of a kind of hermeneutic, um, a colonized hermeneutic. And 
you know, certainly for me, as I was going in, I've, I wanted to find the evidence of this. Um, I, I was not raised really with uh, much understanding of the social gospel or Latin American liberation theology. It wasn't until I arrived in seminary that I began to read uh, on the social gospel side, Walter Rauschenbusch and then uh, Gutierrez and Boff and Sobrino on liberation theology and, and found their work compelling um, and, and really wanted to find this in my collaborators and very rarely found it. In fact, the only preachers who really talked, uh, that used the language of Latin American liberation theology had encountered it in their seminary training as they moved beyond kind of their local congregations and then were taught about this, this legacy from Latin America, um, but were taught in, in predominantly white institutions. Um, and so my question was, well, what does this all mean? And does this mean that the kind of preaching that I'm hearing is all inauthentic or at least less authentic? Uh, because even those preachers who um, who were committed to kind of classical liberationist ideals rarely preached week-to-week -week sermons reflecting on those themes to their individual congregations. They were more likely to preach in that way um, in larger gatherings potentially of their denomination where they were talking to the majority culture. And so I think for me, one important thing was moving beyond the term authentic to the idea of what manifests integrity. Uh, because authentic really introduces a binary. It is either authentic or it is not if it has certain markers or lacks them. Whereas the idea of manifesting integrity uh, provides for multiple possibilities and maybe broadens this idea of what constitutes authentic, if you want to use the term Hispanic preaching, or what kind of preaching manifests integrity for Hispanic Protestant immigrant congregations. Um, and what I found was that this preaching, for multiple reasons, still manifested integrity, even where it overlapped um, with some of the predominant themes of American evangelicalism. I think when we think about that overlap, we need to first say that correlation is not necessarily causation. Um, although there may be colonial influence at work here, and certainly has been historically when we think about uh, the missionary efforts and the establishment of uh, some of these seminaries and Bible institutes in Latin America. Certainly that has taken place. But also at some point, I think it's important to recognize the agency of the practitioners and pastors themselves. You know, at some point, this uh, theology becomes theirs. Um, at some point, 
because it resonates with their lived reality. It becomes theirs in different ways than it might belong to American evangelicalism. And it was kind of these points of resonance for me uh, that were helpful. Uh, so for instance, when you think about preaching about the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, on one hand, we could say, well, this is just clearly borrowing from American evangelicalism, and we can stop there. Or we could also reflect on these stories that my collaborators and many others have shared of the alienation that they experienced during their migration journeys, of their loss of identity. Um, in many cases, you know, for those that are working using uh, the names and social security numbers of others, they may actually be um, losing their own name that was given to them at birth. And so the idea when a personal relationship with Jesus is preached, and it's preached in this language of conociendo a Cristo, knowing Christ and being known by Christ, um, it has a powerful resonance for these immigration communities. In fact, it may have a more powerful resonance uh, than it does for some white American evangelical communities in this sense. I think also when we think about some of these other themes that are introduced in the preaching, in the face of loss of community, um, one of the common preaching themes was for these pastors to reflect on the nature of God as the gatherer of God's people, reconstituting a people. And they would often look to uh, pictures of God gathering God's people out of exile uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that happens in the Old Testament when God gathers God's people is there are covenants put in place and there are expectations of behavior. So God brings his, God brings God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And then the first thing that happens is all of these laws are put in place, the Ten Commandments and the rest of um, the codes that we find uh, in the Pentateuch and, and all of these laws help hold this reconstituted people together. And so in a sense, when, when you get moralistic preaching um, in some of these immigrant communities, this is also an effort to hold a community together which is a diverse community. It's not a monolithic community, right? In some of these congregations, we have immigrants coming from uh, South America and Latin America and the Caribbean and Central America, sometimes uh, congregants from six or seven different countries, um, not only with different accents, but who also spoke different languages in addition to Spanish and have had very different experiences of migration and they're all now in one faith community together. And so um, when you think about holding this new fragile community together, uh, some of this moralistic preaching, again, is perhaps best understood or equally understood as a necessary kind of, um, a necessary form of social cohesion and, and theological and imaginative cohesion, moral cohesion for this new group. That's not just a borrowing of American evangelical preaching imperatives. Um, so you mentioned even this, 
this preaching on the war on Christmas. And there is a sermon that I include in here that is a critique. But what's so interesting about it is it's not the critique we sometimes hear in American evangelical circles. Um, that perhaps, you know, a liberal left is restricting the use of the term Merry Christmas uh, as used by retailers. That might be the way that you would see it in, in those, uh, perhaps from those specific news stations. But in this particular sermon, the war on Christmas as this particular immigrant pastor envisioned it was the war of American consumerism and materialism threatening to supplant the real message of Christmas, which is, um, you know, the story of Christ coming into the world. And so he imagines this war happening very differently. And his sermon actually becomes a form of resistance to what he sees as kind of this uh, American imperialism in the form of consumerism in his sermon. Uh, now, I want to be careful when I say all these things. It's not to say that this is truly the authentic form of Hispanic Protestant immigrant preaching. You know, I just want to say that this is a form that also manifests integrity. I think that there are many ways to do this. I think that it looks different as we move into Gen 1.5 and Gen 2, as we think in terms of different denominations, uh, as we think in terms of different parts of the country, perhaps where immigrant communities have been established for multiple generations. When we think about places like Texas and California, where these communities didn't cross the border, instead the border crossed them and they've been there for, uh, for more generations than the United States has been there. Um, what I mean to say is that among these newly arrived communities, where you have first generation Hispanic Protestant pastors preaching to first generation congregants and their children, um, that this kind of preaching too manifests integrity for those communities based on the journeys uh, that they have undertaken and the immigrant realities that they are still experiencing. Thank you very much. That's fascinating. And I, want, I was, I was uh, as I was hearing you answer this and, and, and talk about uh, this dynamics, uh, it made me wonder um, how, how much constraint you had to use uh, in faithfulness to your methodology. Um, being that, as I, as I understood, uh, you would not write a description that wasn't, in a way, also a self-description or a self-understanding of these of, of, of these preachers, which seems to be, uh, you know, just a, 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 a something that will be coherent with collaborative collaborative ethnography. Um, how much of that? Uh, how mu how much temptation to interpret uh, did you have to resist while, while writing this? Well, I think I need to acknowledge first of all that, of course, there is still interpretation. There's interpretation every time I translate one of their words or you know, dare to say what it means. Um, what I was aiming for was for this to be co-interpretation. And there were certainly times, you know, not all of my collaborators saw things exactly the same way. 
Um, there were times when, you know, one collaborator would see it one way and another collaborator would see it another way. And, you know, I would be left to kind of find my way forward in the interpretive balance. Um, but as I came back to them, you know, they could, they could understand, even if they didn't necessarily agree um, with every finding, they could understand how it reflected um, the pool of collaborators as a whole. So one of the ways to do that was I would sometimes come back, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but through focus groups. Um, and focus groups were wonderful for decentering me because there were times that they almost forgot I was there as they were talking about what my book meant um, or what it should mean. And so I got to sit back and take notes and, um, and then go through more editing and revising. Uh, but really in this sense, it was, it was a wonderfully co-creative experience. That's fascinating. Um, when you, you, all, you then you have a whole chapter also on predicadoras, right? Woman preachers. And it's just fascinating because you, there, there's some things that, um, that, that, that you found there that I, that I also found in my research that I, that, that I, I, I thought there was just many, many different things as well that I, I just, just blew my mind in some ways. But you document in that, in that chapter how the material experiences of women preachers and the influence of Pentecostalism, right, among other things, join forces in this process by which women provide indispensable leadership for these communities. And then even communities, they are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, which don't officially allow the ordination of women um, the, these communities kind of subvert that uh, that particular uh, disposition at one point, right? Um, they're one of the communities you look at. So what are the major challenges that Hispanic women preachers face and, and what mechanisms do they exercise, uh, and do they use to exercise their vocation as preachers? So uh, it's Charles Barfoot and Gerald Shepard who really talk about early Pentecostalism and, and women's roles and possibilities. And they describe a golden age for white Pentecostal female ministers that really closes up again um, by the middle of the 20th century. You know, there are more restrictions in place. Uh, but then Gaston Espinosa writes that in contrast to that, for Latina Pentecostal pastors, it has, rather than being a flourishing and then a contraction, it's really been more of a gradual uphill climb. Um, and I found that to be true for many of my collaborators as they were, um, some of them were experiencing the, the benefits of those who had been kind of luchando, fighting before them. Uh, and some of them were really the ones making space on their own for their own ministries. And this is a place in this chapter specifically, you know, the, the closest to um, classical liberation theology uh, that some of my preachers came were my female preachers who were bearing prophetic witness and advocating for maybe not social change in the broader society, but change within their church environments uh, related to the role of women. Uh, and there's a sermon in this chapter that I'll talk about in a minute that, that does that. Uh, but certainly the hurdles in place, um, there, is, there is some degree of machismo 
and I want to be careful when I use that term because I think that some of what is uh, often described as machismo by, by white culture um, and is characterized therefore as unhealthy is not necessarily, you know, being, being forthright, whether it's a male or a female being forthright can be sometimes characterized as machismo and really it, it's just being forthright and standing up and speaking for oneself. Um, but there is absolutely toxic machismo as well in the same way that there is toxic masculinity that presents hurdles. Um, the other thing, and Espinosa is really the one uh, who I believe coins this term, is there's an expectation of paradoxical domesticity. And the way that he talks about that, uh, and I think this is brilliant, he says that, you know, there's an idea that these uh, Latina preachers or female preachers would be bold proclaimers of the word in the pulpit, unapologetically bold, and yet they would still perform uh, the role of submissive housewife at home. And so in some ways, and he talks about this in, in both an actual and a performative sense, it is, it is the balancing of these roles that allows them to continue to uh, fulfill their ministry in the church, only because the church also sees them when they're not in the pulpit being, uh, you know, loving wife, doting mother, you know, all of these other things that are perhaps part of the expectation. And, and that's a, uh, a much more significant burden than the male predicadores are having to carry. But especially coming from the Pentecostal traditions and those traditions that have experienced some degree of Pentecostalization, there are resources um, that these women have at hand. And, and some of it is just the pneumatology that focuses on the unpredictable nature of the spirit, the ability of the spirit to do something new, to call forth new witnesses on behalf of the gospel, to, to fulfill the words of the prophet Joel, that a day will come when both sons and daughters will prophesy. And so that's part of it. Um, I think part of it is the understanding of, of calling and that calling is this uh, intensely personal experience. And then calling is shared with the larger community through testimony. And testimonial was a big part for these women in, uh, in authorizing their ministries. Um, there's also a willingness in both the Pentecostal and, and the larger evangelical uh, Hispanic world to, to see if something bears fruit to see if it is of God. And I share this story from Elizabeth Conde Frazier, who talks about in, in her ministry, having to do this, having to say to all of these male pastors in her concilio that um, had questions about her ability to lead a congregation, to just take a wait and see approach and to see if at the end of a certain period of time, her ministry was bearing fruit that would attest to the work of the spirit. And so um, because of the resonance of that language in that community, they were willing to give her that period of time. And at the end of that time, you know, they all had to agree that this was of God. Um, 
Now, the major sermon in this chapter that I include is really this fascinating sermon um, from a young female preacher who grew up in uh, a devout Catholic family in Mexico and then became Pentecostal and gradually became a Methodist minister in the United States. And she preached a sermon about, uh, and she used as her text, the Magnifica, this song of Mary after receiving um, the visit from the angel Gabriel. Um, and she preaches this sermon and weaves together uh, very skillfully the, the importance of Mary as somebody who bears witness to what God is doing. And she also critiques the ways in which Protestant churches, and especially, you know, these first-generation Hispanic immigrants who are often first-generation converts from Catholicism uh, to Protestantism and, and sometimes have, carry with them uh, anti-Catholic sentiments, you know, and tend to reject Mary because of uh, the high esteem in which she's held in the Catholic Church. Um, she critiques that as it's practiced in the Catholic Church and say that, you know, a rejection of Mary is a rejection of a woman who is bearing witness to what God is doing. And we as women, and she begins to speak to just the women in the congregation, know what this rejection feels like. She talks about the way these women have experienced rejection uh, and pain and both the wounds of migration and ongoing wounds in their own congregations. And so ultimately this sermon exalts Mary, even as Mary is singing about God's exaltation of the lowly, and then also elevates the role and the possibilities of women at the same time. And I'm not doing it the justice that it deserves. This is one of the reasons that people just need to buy the book and read the sermon for themselves. Thank you. Yeah, that that chapter is 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 fascinating. You know, the you tell a story of a of of, of conflict in a church, also uh, as it relates to one of the one of the predicadoras, and you talk about shared ministry. I mean, it's just so much. And I finished reading that chapter. I'm like that that could be, you know, just a book out of another book, just out of this chapter here. Just so much to flesh out. I really appreciated. Um, that all the chapters, but but that one was fast, particularly fascinating to me. Uh, but one one of the challenges that you lay out for the readers of of predicadores, Tito, is to incorporate ethnography in pastoral formation and theological education, which by the time you get to the conclusion is really, I mean, it, it just it, it's really clear how how much enriching um, this this practice of collaborative ethnography can be. So you say, for example, that contextual, contextually faithful proclamation requires the preacher to be an ethnographer as well. So this made me think how, of how incarnational ethnography can be, particularly collaborative, collaborative ethnography. And I wonder what uh, some practical things that pastors in general and pastors who serve in churches with significant numbers of minoritized individuals or groups in particular can do to apply ethnography. Uh, in their homiletical calling or ministerial practice? So for me, one of the books that I read that just was really formative was Leonora Tubbs Tisdale's book on preaching um, as local theology and folk art. And uh, I read this book even before I began my doctoral work. And suddenly it gave me language 
uh, and structure for many of the things that I had already been attempting to do in local church ministry. Um, so, you know, I've, as, as I've already shared with you, I grew up in this bicultural immigrant family, um, grew up in Texas, went to college in Texas. When my wife and I were first married, she had grown up in Arizona. We went to pastor um, or to serve a church in a small town in Western North Carolina in the foothills of the mountains. And it was a totally distinct culture. You know, it was an old furniture town in which furniture factories and textile mills had shut down. Um, they even spoke a different variety of English there. You know, coming from Texas, I was used to people saying y'all for the second person plural. And in the mountains of North Carolina, they say Ewans. And if they're really trying to be formal and polite, sometimes they use, um, and I would jokingly refer to it as the King's English, they would say Ewans instead of Ewans. And I thought this, this is a very different place. And so part of my, uh, out of a desire to minister faithfully there, I just wanted to understand um, the, the theological and social imagination of the people that I had been called to serve. And I think this happens by listening. You know, I, I visited as many people as I could in their homes. And I asked them questions about how they had come to be members of the congregation and how they had come to faith in the first place. And as you listen to those kinds of conversations, you hear the theological language that people, um, maybe the theological language by which people understand or through which people understand their own lives and journeys of faith. Um, and then I would try to to some degree translate for myself, you know, as I was preaching to make sure, again, this is what Henry Mitchell calls for, that I was preaching in the idiom of the people, that I was uh, translating the concepts that I felt called to preach into language that was going to land for my hearers and be seriously imaginable for them. Um, and so all of these things are helpful and uh, Leonora Tubbs Tisdale does a, a fantastic job of really outlining exercises uh, that local pastors can use to do this. Mapping exercises to think about um, who is in their community and who is in their church and who is not, and, and kind of the history of their church's relationship with the community and the symbols that are at use um, in the particular house of worship and the language that's most salient, all of these things. Um, I found tremendously helpful. So in my teaching of preaching courses, uh, both at Duke and, and in some of these extension programs throughout Latin America, I would incorporate some of these exercises and send people out to interview their congregants and to conduct focus groups with them. And for those who were already serving in churches, it really was a wonderful opportunity uh, to come to know to a greater degree the context in which they had been called to serve. Let me let me let me ask you one one last thing, um, because as someone who who read this book really carefully and 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 has is still processing so much rich information, both in terms of of methodological insights, but also in terms of the the narrative uh, itself and the the people who you present here. 
so much richness. What's, what's next for you? What can we wait from you next in terms of uh, your real research agenda? Do you have, are you thinking about the next project already? I know that you're doing wonderful work at, at Lilly Endowment that uh, it has a kind of a different focus, but in terms of research, I'm wondering if, if we can wait uh, or what we can wait from you next. You know, I think when I think about research, I think I'm probably moving into uh, what I would call now is participatory action research. Um, and, and that's the way I would characterize a lot of my work that I'm now doing in the religion division of Lilly Endowment, um, which is, you know, a significant funder uh, of religion in the United States. Uh, the religion division has as its goal contributing to the vitality uh, of American Christianity. And so in many ways, I see this as a continuation of my work, um, serving the church, supporting those who serve the church, supporting those who would uh, prepare and form those who would serve the church. Uh, it's just doing it from a slightly different angle. Um, but I still see within that larger goal, um, the importance of, of serving and supporting the people who served as my collaborators in this book. You know, I, uh, as the book came out, I was able to uh, send copies to all of them and to catch up with them again. Some of them I'm, I stay in regular contact with as well, uh, which is a gift. Uh, but I, I always try to keep them in mind. Uh, and to, and this is one of my, my takeaways in writing this book. Ultimately, I see ethnography as a form of bearing witness, a bearing testimony, uh, in this case to the faithfulness of these preachers. And, and that is what I hope that readers uh, come away with. I, I just find um, their faithfulness incredibly inspiring. And in my current work, I am still guided by that faithfulness and, and the desire to support those who um, have persevered through difficulty and, and the ongoing uh, realities of marginalization, minoritization, however they experience those things, um, and yet continue to put one foot in front of another and proclaim uh, the goodness of God for themselves and for others in similar circumstances. Thank you very much, Tito. It's an amazing talk, brother. I could, again, talk about this for a long, long time, especially with you. Well, it is wonderful to have our, uh, our HTI reunion here via podcast. Uh, Someday when we're all traveling again, I look forward to seeing you face to face. Yes, hopefully that, that, that's coming up soon. I appreciate that. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own.
Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.